0: 1 million reasons Australia's housing market is screwed and the evil lies that distorted infrastructure projects and rising living standards into a threat. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 1st of July 2022, I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome.
1: Thanks Lisa. 1st of July, that's why I'm feeling so cold.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure in Melbourne. Um, now on today's show we're going to be talking about the latest on the housing market front and also the propaganda campaign that made so many Australians and people all over the world believe that the that China's Belt and Road Initiative is a threat. Now, don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe and share as widely as you can. Leave comments below. It all helps to uh, circulate the video even more. Now, before the first segment today, we want to provide an update on our campaign for a postal bank, which is just now really getting into high gear. We've got all the ammunition we've talked about in the previous weeks with our new flyer, uh, with our flip book, so that you can illustrate this idea to all your local authorities and MPs and so forth. Uh, But we put out a media release uh, on the 29th of June, and this really lays out, how you can um, hone in on what every local council, every local community needs, given the the major shutdowns of bank branches all over the country?
1: Well, the bank branch closures is one of the angles that will help us get this um, policy up, Elisa, because it addresses it. The banks are abandoning communities all across Australia, mostly in regional areas, but actually in cities as well. and, and, And when they do... We identify that they're ignoring the small businesses, they're ignoring the, the, um, the people who need face-to-face banking services, and they include people like the elderly, people like the disabled. They need that certainty of face-to-face banking services. When the banks say, "I oh, know they can do it online, they are terrified of online. They are overwhelmed by online. And and not only is the technology overwhelming, they are terrified of the scams. There's scammers everywhere. Everyone's phone is going off multiple times a day. You're all being scammed by Amazon, by the ATO, etc. People who are unsophisticated get sucked into this all the time. And then these other people hear the cases. And when the banks are bit, they just have totally callous disregard for these people. Right? They don't give us stuff. They lie about the need to close the branches. They say they're not profitable. Rubbish. There's no such thing as an unprofitable bank branch. You'd have to be a ghost town for the bank branch to be unprofitable. Banks can take those deposits and they multiply them many times into loans, Mm. right? They charge fees. They usually own the the buildings that the branches they're closing. They own the buildings. They've owned them for hundred damn years, right? That's not costing them anything. what they're doing is they are just—they do not care about these communities. They're just consolidating their books, um, so that to make their profits look better. They—they they even dodgy it up anyway. We explain all that in the release, but it's a—it's a very very serious issue. And what we go through is there was there's been a number of inquiries in the last few decades that have settled on the truth that banking, face to face banking is an essential service. And in two thousand and four. Well, Anthony Albanese, when he was a backbencher in 1999, participated in one of these inquiries. And in 2004, there was a follow-up, because, which Penny Wong participated in. And they are probably the two most senior ministers in this government, right? And in the Penny Wong one, she wrote there additional comments by the Labor Party that said, if the banks don't lift their game on this, we are signaling to them we will re-regulate them. Banks have not been regulated in Australia since the 80s. This was a serious thing Labour said. Okay, they're now in government. Yep. Banks have not lifted their game. What are they going to do? Right? So we have the instructions in there. But what we're asking people to do, write to Anthony Albanese, ask if you're going to, if he's going to re-regulate the banks, raise awareness. We've got this material. We have published a list. It's in this week's alert service. It's on our website. Of the five hundred and seventy-five towns across Australia that used to have a bank, one or more bank branches and now have no no more have it. Don't. <laughs> sorry.
0: None whatsoever. They're
1: none whatsoever anymore, right? They've lost their last bank branch. Um, uh, sorry about tripping over my tongue there. Uh, go to them. Look look through this list. If you know those towns, go to them. Take our flyer. Walk down the main street. Give it to all the businesses. Give it to the post office. You're going to get right? a
0: good reception.
1: No, you, you absolutely are. Um uh, we've got material on our website, we've got our video here, we've got a video that exp- that's just up on YouTube that explains the postal bank issue, etc. Use this material. Yeah. We Help us raise awareness. In a month's time, Parliament's going to sit. And what we'll be strategising about is when's the best time to introduce the bill that we've written for a postal bank so it's forced on the agenda as soon as possible. Hopefully we might even do it in a month's time, mm. right? But please get involved in this.
0: And we'll be keeping you posted. There's a lot more planned. Now, on to our first topic. One million reasons Australia's housing market is screwed. Uh, Now, we've just heard this stunning news overnight that the Commonwealth Bank put fixed mortgage rates up by 1.4%. And that brings various... Um, year levels of mortgages into the 5 to 6% range. They increased variable interest rates by 0.5%. Of course, there'll be more coming. Um, this...
1: ANZ's fixed interest rate is almost 7% now.
0: Mm. Well, there was an article that came out on this in Macro Business um, where they're forecasting, according to latest, the latest futures market forecast, the Australian official cash rate will reach 3.2% by December and 3.8% by June 2023. There's a graph we can show of that. This would see Australia's discount variable mortgage rate more than double from 3.45% to 7.15%. So that's on the variable mortgage rates by June 2023. Um, Now in that would see the average principal and interest mortgage repayments rise by around 50%. And another report that just came out today by Jarden Group, their chief economist, is saying Australian households will take a $45 billion a year hit, so an increase of $45 billion a year on higher higher mortgage payments by the end of next year. And this report was saying... They're going to cut their spending everywhere, yep. so get ready for recession, basically. The other thing we wanted to mention on the housing market is the rental affordability crisis is extreme, and we're getting reports from all over Australia about this.
1: In Queensland, it's ridiculous. People are sleeping in their cars everywhere because they, they just literally cannot get a house. Mm.
0: Um, now, according to the census report, though, where the statistics just came out a couple of days ago, there are one million empty houses just sitting empty in this country now
1: (laughs) this is a long-term problem and there's there's groups that have been measuring this for um quite a while including prosperity australia and there's ways you can measure it because the um but the census is a very good one right so the census was taken uh 2021 right so the census tells you uh accurate figures they back up what these other groups like prosperity australia have been reporting and, Elisa, I remember a few years ago there was a lot of attention paid on the fact there was 50 million empty apartments in China. The million empty homes in Australia per capita is greater hmm. than what than that horror story from China, these 50 million empty apartments. Um, this is why we're saying this is a million reasons the housing market's hmm. screwed because what's the housing market for? To house people. What, what the million empty homes tells you is that people are buying homes to help bank them because they've been in a speculative market, mm. prices have been going up, and it's been more profitable to use a house for what it's not to be, what what it wasn't built for, to sit empty, than actually what it was used for. Meanwhile, people can't um, afford rents because there's not enough availability. This is a dysfunctional, broken system, and we have to acknowledge that and change uh, it.
0: Yeah, Seven Thirty did a report on it a couple of nights ago, and they uh, had a lady from the Renters and Housing Union, and she said, look. Um, What the government's proposing is totally inadequate. She said, we need five times the amount in Victoria alone to meet the current waiting list. We need to see urgent action to regulate the rental market. The government's Housing Australia Future Fund, which they promised in the election, was to build 30,000 social or affordable homes over five years.
1: Now, let's let's compare that. Well-intentioned, I'm sure. Let's compare that to a time that's called the golden age of public housing in Australia. And this was kicked off by Ben Chifley in 1945 when all the states set up housing commissions and the federal government funded the states to build housing. And what did the federal government use to fund the states? The Commonwealth Bank. We had a national bank and it loaned the money, the federal national bank loaned the money to the states. Ben Chifley built 90,000 houses in ten years, at a time when our population was less than half of what it is now, and all the, this current Labor government can aspire to is thirty thousand houses over five years. This is what this is what the different. The, when you have a national bank, at least your expectations change. What we have to do is look at the question of what is what is the the um, what's the challenge, what's the job, what's the outcome we need more housing. What are the tools we need? And that's how you—that's how people will start to understand the importance of a national bank. Yeah, that a, that a postal bank can be part of, right? Um, the tools can, to provide the credit for that can come through these public institutions.
0: Now, if you're new to this show, you might be thinking that sounds rather extraordinary—that we could have a national bank facility, we could have government credit to fund infrastructure and you know vital developments, even social housing and so forth. But It's actually not, and in the next segment, we are now going to talk about a model for the world that has demonstrated exactly how this can be done. Yes. The evil lies that distorted infrastructure projects and rising living standards into a, quote-unquote, threat. Uh, We're going to be talking about the China's Belt and Road Initiative here and an extensive series that the Australian Alert Service has published, But I want to preface it first by just mentioning, in contrast to what China's done and is doing, uh, the meetings that have taken place this week uh, of the NATO and a larger group um, of additional countries they want to bring into NATO. Partners. Partners and also the G7 summit. Um, Now, NATO proclaimed a new strategic concept of confrontation with both Russia and China. Um, so this is the first time they're bringing China into their orbit of action officially. It's been unofficial for some time.
1: And remind just remind viewers what we, Richard Barden and I discussed last week. Elisa, our allies don't know geography. NATO, which is now saying China is its business, is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. Mm. What business does it have in the Asia-Pacific?
0: Uh, and... China's partnership with Russia, which remember was announced uh, on the sidelines of the Olympics earlier in the year, um, was said to be an attempt to undercut the rules-based international order. So we can't have countries cooperating together, um, you know, against us. Um, Also NATO announced increased military deployments across Europe to further encircle Russia, which is what caused the current war in Iraq in um, Ukraine, which is because Russia had perceived this NATO encroachment as a threat, and the West and NATO, etc., would not take it seriously.
1: in in, 19, in the 1950s, at least. Churchill's aide, who was instrumental in setting up NATO, said its purpose was mm. to keep Germany down, the Americans in, and Russia out. That's what he said in the 1950s. That's what they are revived now. And the NATO announcement and the Amer- America has announced new bases in, in um, Eastern Europe, like in Poland. Um, this goal is well and truly still the goal and they're, they're, they're doing all, everything they can to achieve it.
0: And just a very slight diversion on the Ukraine situation at the moment. I wanted to mention because it's so egregious and it's hardly being reported anywhere. On the 20th of March... Um, Zelensky, who was one of the guest speakers at NATO and, you know, has been lauded across the world as a great in his khaki um, muscle t-shirt. leader of you know, f- freedom and so forth. Well, on the 20th of March, he banned 11 opposition parties, including the Opposition Platform for Life, which holds 10% of the seats in the Ukrainian parliament and its leader is under arrest. Uh, these parties are all banned for being supposedly pro-Russian, but without the proper legal procedures, and uh, we'll be documenting that more in the alert service. Um, but some of it, it's just because they maintained their silence and didn't denounce the Russian invasion, for instance.
1: Some of it was because a few years ago, they said they had the temerity to say, we, Ukraine, should abide by the Minsk Accords. The Minsk Accords that were negotiated with countries like Germany and France to try and bring peace to eastern Ukraine... Where the Russian-speaking Ukrainians were fighting against the the swastika-tattooed Ukrainians, right? The Azov Battalion, and they tried to bring peace to that area with these accords, and Ukraine never enforced them. And from 2014 onwards, Russia kept saying you must enforce the Minsk Accords. And any party in Ukraine that now that has, that has said that in the last few years has also been banned by this great democrat, mm. Vladimir Zelensky, who shares our values. Right? You're being lied to people. Yeah,
0: so stay tuned for more on that later. But uh, in response to the NATO summit, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov talked about the principle of the indivisibility of security, meaning that global security means everyone's security is protected, every single nation, Um, and he said this has been completely and fully ignored.
1: Now, I just want to say something in case people get confused, because some, some people might come back and say, oh... Yeah, but what about Ukraine's security? Ukraine didn't feel safe from Russia, and the invasion proves that. No, no. Russia said NATO makes us unsafe, but Russia was prepared to sign guarantees with other countries that would have been guarantors for Ukraine's security if Ukraine was prepared to preserve its status as neutral, etc. Right? Sign guarantees that would have settled Russia's security issues and Ukraine's. That's what what he's meaning. You can provide security to every country. The, the NATO ethos pushed by the Anglo-Americans, and they are the drivers of this because they're the furthest out of danger, by the way. The Brits are furthest on the edge of Europe and the Americans are miles away. The NATO ethos, though, is to use NATO to crush Russia mm. and everything they've done um, proves it. John Mearsheimer, the, the, the great academic, gave a, a presentation last week. He pointed out that since 2014, NATO has been in Ukraine non-stop. Training people, equipping them with weapons. They have a, they've been a pro, a new, a NATO proxy ever since then. Despite Russia making it clear for 30 years, as Paul Keating talked about, as America's top diplomats talked about, um, including the guy who's currently the head of the CIA, as even Henry Kissinger talked about. For 30 years, Russia said this is our red line: any expansion of NATO um, eastward is a threat to us, and we just kept doing it, right? Um, and so we got the the, the NATO. These, these facts prove that NATO has um, achieved the outcome that it wanted.
0: Mm. Now, the Chinese Foreign, Ministry spokesma- a Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman also made a comment about the G7, which is worthwhile thinking about because uh, G7 just calls itself an international society. So the Chinese spokesman said that the G7 represents 777 million people, while the BRICS countries, which just held their forum... A home to 3.2 billion people. And there's been a discussion um, from the Russians and others about how you could create a more um, pertinent G8 forum, which would include countries like Indonesia and so forth, that are far more representative of the world than yep. this old G7 apparatus, which they just kick anyone out of that they don't agree with. Um, now, at the BRICS forum, I'll just add, which they had what they call BRICS Plus that just took place Um, They um, also confirmed, Russia, actually Putin in his speech confirmed that BRICS is, quote, exploring the possibility of creating an international reserve currency based on the basket of BRICS currencies. And this is one of the greatest fears of the Wall Street City of London um, financial Uh, money power that uh, the rest of the bulk of the world, actually, that are not going along with the so-called rules-based order are going to buck the system and create their own, of which the bulk of the world will flock to.
1: And and they are. And um, you see that in the map of the world that hasn't supported the sanctions on Russia, the majority of the world. Mm. And that brings us to Albanese, Elisa, because... So far, he's been bitterly disappointing. Today, I, or last night, I put out a tweet saying, where's Albanese getting his views from? And I and thought, who would be the most embarrassing person to suggest Albanese is getting his views from? And I said it, Scott Morrison. He is absolutely repeating Scott Morrison on the world stage. When it comes to a white country, France, he's willing to throw Scott Morrison under the bus, denounce him as a liar. But when it comes to the brown world, when it comes to China, when it comes to the NATO war, the, the people that... Scott, Josh Albanese knows NATO are the perpetrators of wars for 30 years. He knows that. He knows NATO did Afghanistan. He knows the NATO members did Iraq. He knows all this. He's said public statements to this effect. He was attacked on Sky News viciously by that evil Shari Markson um, before the election over his the things he said in the 90s about trying to get some balance on Palestine, right? Right? Yet what he's doing, if I don't know if he pl- thinks he's playing a long game or whatever, but what he's doing is saying publicly, aligning us with the most vicious, warmongering ag- NATO agenda. Um, and essentially, this is how it looks to the rest of the world. He is only comfortable with white countries. Forget, forget his, little, his little jaunt to um, Indonesia, mm. right? That's, that's the obvious one, that, you know, because it's our neighbour. The rest of the world sees Australia and New Zealand, and Jacinda Ardern is doing the same thing going over there chumming it up with the white world the minority white world because we're afraid of the Asian world which is most of the world in our own region right that's what that's that's the message he's giving he is being Scott Morrison if that's embarrassing to your elbow do something about it snap out of it you will not get concessions out of the United States and the United Kingdom by kissing their ass you have to stand up for Australia's sovereignty. Right, And this is the, the Australian, we're going to go through in a minute mm. some of the details related to this. But I just want to mention there's a, there's a blowback from New Zealand against Ardern on this. Because for a long time, Australia, we, we, it's been drummed into us. Oh, we need the United States for our security. That's why we need the United States. Whereas Malcolm Fraser, when he wrote his book in 2014, says Australia needs its alliance with the United States for security. But Australia only needs security because of its alliance with the United States right? But anyway, that's what we're told. We're told to be terrified that there's, there's this China threat, China's going to invade. Never any, you know, 5,000 years of history, there's, no, there's nothing about China to back that up. Um, the Kiwis, though, have long, ever since the early 80s, have long had a different public posture. They, they haven't felt the need to, to be a sycophant to the United States. In fact, they've told the United States, we don't need your nuclear umbrella, but Ardern's changing all that. And Ardern is getting a lot of pressure from new zealand and even helen clark came out in the last month and questioned quite forcefully the sovereignty implications of what ardern is doing and this is this is starting to sting um i'm going to be interviewing after this show so let's just flag it for the viewers the former associate foreign minister of new zealand matt robson we're going to interview i'm going to interview him about the postal bank because his party set up new zealand's postal bank But I'm going to interview him about foreign policy because he's a foreign policy and an international law expert. And he's going to give the perspective that is starting to bubble up in New Zealand about this. And Australians need to see this Mm -hmm. and see what a senior statesman like him is prepared to say about this issue and compare it to the propaganda you're getting.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'll be something to look forward to. Now, we want to discuss um, briefly, and there's a lot in there, so be sure to contact us to... um, Get a copy of a pamphlet we've just produced, which is just compiles together a series of four articles and two additional articles uh, over the last couple of months that have been published in our Australian Alert Service, written by our researcher Melissa Harrison, and this pulls together uh, a great sweep of history um, from the period when China first announced in 2013 their Belt and Road Initiative and how. I mean, this was an intervention China was making, particularly after the GFC, in which they had been putting money um, towards development projects and infrastructure, uh, as opposed to what the Western countries were doing with the quantitative easing, which was just pumping it into bailing out the banks. All the major
1: central banks of the world pumped out all this money as quantitative easing, tens of trillions. China did too. The difference is what China did with it. Mm. At investment in the biggest infrastructure development yeah. program in history. The rest of it just used. The rest of them just used it to prop up China bank gambling.
0: China poured as much concrete in a couple of years as what the United States had done in the whole century. You know things like that. So they were actually doing something real and significant, and it took the West a few years to catch up to what to the fact that Belt and Road represented China, not telling the world what to do whatsoever. Quite in the opposite way. China was leading by example to show here's what can be done if you want to actually... This is working
1: for us. It could work for you too.
0: Exactly. Um, And there was a campaign from 2017 uh, to therefore demonise the Belt and Road to block nations from going in this direction so that they couldn't uplift themselves.
1: We've dubbed this campaign Operation China Threat.
0: Yeah. So we're just going to go through the main four parts um, the first one being very interesting because it's titled "Why Nations Welcome the BRI," and it just shows how, in the initial phases of the Belt and Road, up until about the point in May two thousand seventeen, when the first China hosted the first Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation, which we had uh, representatives that went to, up until that point, everyone thought it was great. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. The EU ASEAN Business Council praised it as a welcome stimulus to global growth and to fill wide infrastructure gaps and for necessary job creation. PwC PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the big four auditing companies in a 2017 report called Repaving the Ancient Silk Road uh, Silk Routes," said the Belt and Road Initiative has the potential not only to develop much needed infrastructure and promote international trade, but also to facilitate the economic journey of more than 60 countries which lie along the six different economic corridors. Um, However, as we then go through in part two, within weeks of that 2017 uh, Belt and Road Conference in China, a massive propaganda campaign was underway. So from about mid-2017 and... This coincides with the Four Corners report some people may remember. We talked about it at the time. The 5th of June 2017 was called uh, Power and Influence and it alleged Chinese influence operations that were interfering in Australia's domestic policies.
1: Elisa, before you go on with your list of these, these developments, that Four Corners program was before this disgusting book by this Australian academic Clive Hamilton called Silent Invasion, which basically tried to make out that Chinese migration into Australia was part of a silent invasion, the yellow peril to take us over. It explicitly revived the most racist yellow peril paranoia from the 19th century. Um, And and all the politicians read it, it was promoted in parliament, etc. But that book was capped off an agenda that started with this Four Corners show in 2017. Do you know as of now, as of this week, not only is the Four Corners episode removed online because of its, it, it was re, re, it was repeatedly exposed in court for its lies, mm. not just to this billionaire Chow Chak Wing who sued it, but to a, a Australian National University student, Lupin Lu, who Nick McKenzie t- took the transcript of his interview with her and deliberately dodged it up to make it look like she was admitting to something that she wasn't. And this all came out, there had to be a settlement, etc. and so this, the show was removed. But as of this week, ABC has removed its article about the show. It's been taken down as of mm. this week because of the legal implications. And so the very thing that kicked off this whole program in Australia of propaganda is now completely removed offline because it was just totally discredited. Uh, Yet the agenda has marched on regardless.
0: Yep. Now, the same day that that... Four Corners report came out the 5th of June 2017. were also held the Osman meetings, which are the Australia US ministerial meetings in Sydney, which um, had thinly veiled remarks clearly aimed at China. Then uh, the following month, Orkman consultations, which are the Australia UK ministerial meetings, took place, emphasising the importance of intelligence sharing among the Five Eyes and military interoperability to protect the rules-based order, especially in the Pacific region, you know, i.e. because of the China threat. In July 2017, that same month, the Turnbull government issued its foreign policy white paper describing the Belt and Road in a geostrategic context and with a hawkish tone towards China. Uh, The same month was the first meeting of the resurrected Quad. It had existed prior under the Rudd government and so this is the US, Japan, Australia and India. They resurrected it, revived it to counter China as one of these exclusive blocs. By December that year, 2017, the Trump administration had released its national security strategy, identifying China as a national security threat in that language and also Russia. The following month, the then classified US strategic framework for the Indo-Pacific came out, which included an instruction to communicate, quote, the strings attached to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And that started a wave of well-publicised allegations of China's so-called predatory economics. In May 2018, the Henry Jackson Society put out a report, Global Britain in the Indo-Pacific, which similarly followed that vein. In August 2019, another Osman meeting took place after which um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that the US-Australia alliance was entering a new era where a determined effort was required to band together uh, against China. And he also denounced the Belt and Road. Uh, in March 2021, the UK put out an integrated strategic review and listen to the language here. It says that China's growing international stature is by far the most significant geopolitical factor in the world today with major implications for British values and interests and for the structure and shape of the international order. And that idea that the the existing, including financial international order Especially was a threat... Especially which we'll come to in a moment in more detail, um, was backed up by a a UK Ministry of Defence response to that previous integrated review I mentioned. And it stressed the five eyes, but it said this, our partnerships with Canada, Australia and New Zealand will be at the heart of our tilt to the Indo-Pacific as we work to support them to tackle the security challenges in the region.
1: So what you've just gone through there in that... that, episode of the of this new series we produced uh, is the drum beat mm. that that this that we were subjected to right a, a drum beat boom 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 belt and road threat belt and road threat belt and road threat what we have done in this series and what our party has always done is just point out who is beating the drums the people telling you the threat are the people who conspired literally conspired to lie and dodge up intelligence to invade Iraq, people like Mike Pompeo—you can see videos of him when he was the head of the CIA—saying, "We lie, we cheat, we steal. That's what we do, right?" But what they did in the Middle East—they took they took functional, secular countries, and turned them into hellscapes, right? In in in, in um and in, in, it's interesting, it's the secular ones: Iraq, Syria, Libya, right? Literally hellscapes—they turned them into. Um, Based on based on total lies, the, these are the neoconservatives. The Henry Jackson Society that you mentioned is the most extreme despicable neoconservative organisation in the United Kingdom. Um, so, so, so despicable that in 2011, after Gaddafi was brutally murdered, um, one of their co-founders of this Henry Jackson Society said, see, democracy can be dropped from 10,000 feet. In other words, you can bomb countries into being democracies. They believe that only... Anglo-American style liberal democracies are legitimate and that they can change any country that's not a liberal democracy, including through military means, which is a recipe for permanent war. These are the people that, that, that reacted to um, Belt and Road because Belt and Road showed how much economic power China actually has because it's developed its economy mm. and they don't have any economic power anymore. They are basket case economies. Mm. The United States and the United Kingdom which used to be fantastically productive economies, are basket cases. And they said, okay, we cannot, we, we insist on having a, a unipolar world, Elisa, that we there's a, there's a world in which there can be only one superpower, the Anglo-American partnership, and we will not t- accept a multipolar world where we have to acknowledge that countries, by virtue of their size and, and economic strength, must have a right to have a say, especially in their own region. Mm. They will not accept that. Right, And that's what sets up this conflict for war. This is the neoconservative agenda.
0: And um, you know, China's role in all this is kind of inadvertent. It's a bit like if you ever find yourself in a situation where you can see a disaster about to happen and no one's doing anything. And you're thinking, why isn't anyone doing anything? You, yeah. you step forward and you say, right, you do this, you do that and you do that and we'll be okay. That's what China's essentially done. You know, they've they've filled a leadership vacuum economically to say, okay, here's some ideas, guys, let's get things moving. Um, But, of course, the Anglo-American interpret it through their uh, geopolitical glasses to say China must be acting like we would be acting if we were in their place. That's
1: right. And, (laughs) most importantly, though, through the financial glasses because China is not a threat territorially or militarily to Mm. any country, but it is a threat. To an economic system. Yes,
0: so part three, which is the nub that we're getting to here, is titled BRI Threatens Anglo-American Financial Control. And this actually takes it back to the post-World War II era um, when the world um, geopolitical and financial framework was being reshaped. Of course, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was pushing to end colonialism. Uh, Churchill wanted to maintain it at all costs. So there were big fights, which we've documented And and there's a good rundown of it here. Now, the Bretton Woods institutions, which was part of the new financial framework that Roosevelt had envisioned, uh, were meant to be um, similar to the kind of multilateral institutions that China's been proposing, like the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. You know, they would actually help uplift countries. However...
1: So you're talking about the World Bank and the IMF? Yeah,
0: the World Bank and the IMF are the Bretton Woods institutions. And that was what the vision was. However, Roosevelt died... Truman came in, you know, he and uh, Churchill launched the Cold War essentially, um, excluded Russia from the rebuilding after the war. Um, so already there was this implicit, you know, we've got to keep the commies out type outlook. But at the same time, Wall Street and the City of London took over the IMF and World Bank and they now absolutely have been ever since controlled by Europe and the United States. And there's detail in the article you can read about that. Um, but I wanted to mention... Uh, this 2006 open letter that was signed by over 40 non-profit organisations organised by the European Network on Debt and Development about the Paris Club. Because apart from the IMF World Bank, the Paris Club is this club of rich Western lenders that if any country runs into trouble with their debt, they go to the Paris Club to have debt assistance, to have their debt restructured, which gets them into even bigger trouble that they can never get out of. And this is what this open letter said about it. Um, they said, for the la- at least the past 30 years, much of the developing world has been crushed under a mass of foreign debts that amongst other injustices and distortions has put a stranglehold on its growth and poverty reducing opportunities. I mean, this is the way that people describe China's debt trap diplomacy today. And yet anyone who's thinking clearly can see that's what the IMF, World Bank, that's what the Paris Club have done. They have um, put the albatross of debt around the necks of any country that tries to develop.
1: And who holds that debt is these these elites, Anglo-American and, and European elites hold the debt, and the countries enforce their debt claims. And it's and it's the way they've kept colonialism alive, essentially through financial means. Um, just a just to, uh, a point that we should it's worth explaining to people when. Barack Obama started it, I remember, and but now the term is the rules-based order. China and Russia are a threat to the rules-based order. They actually mean the rules for these sort of institutions like the IMF and World Bank, and they also mean the rules that govern who has the influence. So those institutions, by the rules of the institutions, are dominated by the Western powers. And the point is, though, when when those rules were written, China was 1% of the world economy, Elisa. 1%. Now it's bigger than anybody else. Mm. But its say in the IMF and World Bank hasn't changed since back then, Mm. right? And if you're going to sit there and say, oh, literally the biggest economy in the world that's keeping the rest of us going doesn't get a say in these institutions reflective of its size, then you're being, you know, deliberately, you're you're deliberately trying to, um, you know, have a conflict, right? That's what... This, co- this obsession with the rules-based order means. They did not want to give China a say commensurate with its size. So the BRICS was formed where a, a, a whole new financial system is being developed around that mm-hmm. alternative to this. And, of course, then that, then that sets up another conflict. Oh, we're going to go to war to try and stop that.
0: So in late 2015, um, you know, with that background, when China proposed the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, we all, well, some of us would remember the reaction to that. America, Obama, was trying to get countries to boycott it. Australia eventually joined. It's the
1: last act of uh, independence I've seen on Australian foreign yeah, policy. Yeah,
0: exactly. But um, Chatham House, which is the British Royal Institute for International Affairs, you know, premier think tank, declared the aWB a threat to global economic governance. You know, in other words, you're giving countries a way out of our club yep. and that's going to be a threat to our system. And of course, when the BRI itself got going, um, that was a greater threat because it was designed to give a visionary idea to what, it's not just about the finance and the credit, but to encourage development, cooperation, the methods that by which China uplifted nearly a billion people out of poverty. Um, and th- I just wanna read two quotes from um, two documents that show the thinking here. So the 2017 US National Security Strategy claimed that China sought to, quote, displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific region by expanding the reaches of its state-driven economic model, aiming to pull the region into its orbit through state-led investment and loans. In other words, you're giving governments, the state, the power to determine the future of the nation. We can't let countries have that kind of sovereignty and independence from our system. Secondly, the 2018 Henry Jackson Society Report, Global Britain in the Indo-Pacific, I mentioned earlier, said that China is the most likely country to be able to radically change the rules-based international order, quote, in a way contrary to British British interests, by offering an alternative approach to financing.
1: And if anyone knows what British interests actually are, you should be cheering that China is doing it in a way contrary to British interest. The, the role... Britain is, is nowhere near the biggest economy in the world anymore. In fact, it's relatively small, but it has the biggest financial centre in the world, in the city of London. Why is that the biggest financial centre in the world? Because it's still... All the all the institutions of the old colonial British empire, the The territories were ceded, but the banks, the mining companies, the, the corporations are still feeding that loot through the offshore system as well, Lisa, that is out of reach of governments, the, the tax havens in the Caribbean, that the Queen personally rules these tax havens, et cetera. Um, this is the, the modern British Empire.
0: Free trade arrangements yeah. that create the unlevel playing field and monopolisation, I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly,
1: and it, and, it, and it's designed to loot countries. And this is, as you said before, this combined with what the IMF and the World Bank have done, this is the debt trap. Actual people like Deborah Browdingham at, at um Johns Hopkins University has Mm. debunked the debt trap charges against the Belt and Road repeatedly. And the proof is, I want people to think about this. Why are the African countries to a country virtually Mm. siding with the Chinese? Mm. Why are the South American countries siding with the Chinese? Why are the Asian countries, who should be more afraid of China than we are, all members of the Belt and Road?
0: Yeah. Now, just to abridge things shortly, because we're running out of time, but just wanted to mention in the final part, Part four, which talks about um, as the, we came into the COVID 19 era, that was then used as a major pretext to pile up on China. And one of the things referenced there is the um, Victorian BRI Memorandum of Understanding and Framework Agreements, two agreements that were signed with China, which were benefiting Victoria. And then, of course, May 2020, Pompeo came down or did an interview. I forget whether he was here in person or not, but threatened to cut us off from Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Partnerships if we didn't cancel this. A few months later, the Foreign Relations State and Territory Arrangements Bill 2020 was introduced and, of course, eventually passed. And I just wanted to make note that 3,800 different agreements were registered with the government
1: These included sister city arrangements, these included university collaboration arrangements, etc. 3,800 were swept up under this bill, but how many got acted on?
0: Only four of those agreements were canned. Two were those two Belt and Road agreements, and the other two were old agreements with Syria and Iran that they probably just did to make it look like it wasn't just about China. What, What
1: that shows you, if they wrote a bill that... That essentially said, okay, this applies to 3,800 agreements, mm. but only four, only two are banned. Two, two relevant ones were banned. That's what it was about. This was America dictating to us, saying you must pass a law to stop Victoria's Belt and Road deal, even though it was a loose memorandum of understanding, wasn't binding on anyone, and it just, it just helped facilitate, facilitate Victoria's uh, trade with China. Um, now, this is an excellent report. Um, series of, you know, like it's a series of articles in one report uh, by Melissa Harrison. You need to, you know, uh, I, I just appeal to appeal to my fellow Australians. Um, we can, you can close your eyes to this and and wake up one day and be told we're on the edge, the verge of war with China, at which time you will join me out in the street protesting. I guarantee you will, like this like the protests against the Iraq War, biggest in the history of the world. You will join us, or you can. Open your eyes now and recognize the lies, recognize who's telling those lies, look at their background compared to China's record when it comes to economics and and, and global diplomacy. Realize that someone with an agenda is trying to start a war here, trying to start conflict to to maintain their position and their position to protect a system that, if that the rest of one of the reasons you watch this show is because you probably agree with us on economic policy or how we can change Australia, the system we're fighting against. That's destroyed us is the system they're trying to protect. And the system what we want of state investment in infrastructure and services is the system that's made China successful.
0: And we've used it before.
1: We, it's our we, system. They learned it from us. Yeah. Right?
0: So uh, we'll make this report available on our website very shortly. Uh, read it, download it, print it, circulate it. Um, Get involved. Contact us for more information and to subscribe to the alert so you're getting it as it goes out every week. Get
1: in, get involved if you want a practical way to, to to intervene in this. Get involved in the Postal Bank campaign. That is a mm. if we achieve that, we are that's a that's a significant fight back against the neoliberal system that's destroyed us and which mm. we're which we're going to war to defend.
0: That's the show for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Mm.